7.30 island time right now. Me and my family just flew in last night, 11 p.m., got here in Seattle. So 7.30 Hawaiian time. So I wore my shirt just so that you guys would give me grace if, uh, if I'm not fully awake. Uh, but it's going to be a, a great celebration. Uh, Rain Spooner, anybody know the brand? Great brand. Great brand. The original Hawaiian shirt brand picked us up just two nights ago. Pretty excited about this shirt. Thanks for noticing. Um, really glad that you're here. If you've got a Bible, would you grab it and turn with me to the Gospel according to Mark? And we're going to go to chapter 15. There's some Bibles in the seat next to you, perhaps. Go ahead and grab that. Uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, and let me just explain. This is the third talk in a little three-week uh, mini-series that we're calling What Happened on That Cross? And the, and the reason we came back to these chapters, chapters 14 and 15 in the Gospel of Mark, is because we kind of had to speed through them at the end uh, of our series that we just finished, the six-month series in the Gospel of Mark. And the reason we did that is because we really wanted to get to the empty tomb by Easter in the Gospel for obvious reasons. And so we've kind of come back and, and we've started to look, or we've looked at the last three weeks of what actually happened on that cross. And then the reason we've said that cross is because uh, crucifixion was actually a, a, a common thing. For 500 years, think about that, for 500 years, the Romans used crucifixion as their primary means of capital punishment for all non-citizens of Rome. And so hundreds of thousands of people uh, were killed via crucifixion. So Jesus wasn't very unique in that. But what happened on that cross was unique. And we see the aftermath proves it out, that something unique happened. It wasn't just a good man dying for what he believed in. Something much bigger happened. And so we've been looking at that over the last few weeks. Last week, uh, Pastor Ryan ruined my scheme of monopoly Forever, if you're here, can no longer use that because then I feel like the devil. So I'll have to just play it straight up. So you have to go listen to that if you weren't here last week. So today we're going to look at one final, final element. We could do uh, weeks and weeks and weeks on this, but we've just picked three things to look at. We're going to be look, looking at uh, something known as the tearing of the veil. And I'll explain what that is uh, in a moment. Actually, I'll explain it right now. <laughs> there was a giant uh, veil that hung from the ceiling in the temple, and it separated what was called the, ho the holy place, which is where the priests um, in the Jewish religion would come and, and, and do uh, offerings of, of incense. Uh, they, they would do their uh, rituals and, and whatnot. And it separated this other place called the Holy of Holies. And this was a place that, that you could only go into once a year, and, and only one person could go in there, and that was the high priest of Israel. He went in there one, one day a year on, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, because it was thought that the presence of God sat in that space in a unique way. But man, being unholy, uh, could only enter once a year to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. And so that's the veil, and we're going to read about that today. The curtain that separated those two rooms, and we're going to see something happen to that curtain, okay? But it got me thinking about, we don't really understand sort of the significance of, of veils anymore, just because it's, it's not a part of our culture as it once was, um, but I had the privilege of doing a great wedding just uh, seven days ago on a Saturday right before we left for the island. We got, I got to officiate uh, a wedding. Jason and Morgan, who are a part of our congregation, got married. I think they're still married. They're here, right? Yeah, Jason's here. Okay. Morgan's not here, but that doesn't... I'll talk to him after. I don't think that means that there was an issue. Uh, she's probably doing an event somewhere. So, things are fine, though? We're good. Okay. Got, I got a privilege of doing their wedding. It was an awesome wedding. Awesome couple. And I got thinking about the, the bridal veil. You know about this veil? Many of you know about it. Do you know why the veil exists, the bridal veil? Nobody knows. Yeah. Nobody really knows because lots of the meaning has been lost over the years. 
Um, it's actually started as a Jewish tradition that the Christians picked up at, at some point along the way. But the idea is this. Uh, we don't really, at least we didn't do this in my wedding and a lot of weddings I've been to, uh, this isn't how it goes anymore. But, but oftentimes what would happen is the veil would be covering the bride's face until the final moment when uh, the officiant says, I now pronounce you husband and wife, you may kiss the bride, and then the husband lifts the veil and kisses the bride, okay? That's, that we didn't do that at our wedding, that's okay. The symbolism, though, is this. The symbolism <laughs> is this. Before you're married, uh, there are many parts of your life together that are separate. Uh, there's this veil separating your two worlds. And God tells us that when marriage happens, the two become one flesh. And so once you covenant together, once the covenant is established, now the veil can be lifted and the two worlds can become fully one in every way. You see that? The veil is a representation that there are just parts of life together that are, that are off limits, that are not fully integrated until after God does something to make the two become one, and so we represent it with the wedding veil, and it's lifted, and the fullness of the bride's beauty and wonder is now on display for her husband to see, no longer veiled, but in full sight, and the two become one for the remainder of their life together. It's a, it's a beautiful picture. And it's a representation of what we're actually going to see happening here in the book of Mark. So read with me, starting in chapter 15, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, that's noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. Now, at this point, he's hanging on the cross. He's hanging on the cross. And with a loud voice, he cries, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw in this way he breathed his last, the centurion said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Would you pray with me as we ask God to unpack this text for us? Father, we're so privileged to get to, to sit here in this comfortable space, God, and, and, and study your word and consider who you are. God, I just pray that we would not take that for granted. That we'd use any energy that we have to call upon your supernatural energy given to us by your Spirit to sit here today and have to us revealed truths that are beyond us. Truths that we should not have the privilege of seeing, but by your grace, you've revealed to us because you love us. Help us to sit now in the Spirit, God, and to learn and to marvel at your glory, your majesty, and your grace towards us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I'd like to explain here is um, this darkness that comes over the whole land until the ninth hour. So it's very unusual, if you didn't know this, for it to be completely dark from noon to 3 p.m. If you've been in Seattle your whole life, you're like, that's very natural. <laughs> we haven't seen the sun in decades. Okay. No, that's actually unnatural. Um, and this darkness was, was even darker than just some storm clouds rolling in. Um, 
I think this is a literal darkness, but as everything that we've seen on the cross, there's the natural elements and then there's the supernatural elements. So I think God has somehow supernaturally blocked the light of the sun and, and it, it's actually dark. Now, anytime in the Bible you read about darkness, it often is referring to both real but also spiritual realities. And usually darkness is associated with evil and destruction. And so I just want to read you one text from the Old Testament. Uh, You don't have to flip there. Just listen with me. Uh, We're going to look at Amos chapter 8. And there's many, many passages that are similar to this. This this is just one. I'm going to just read two verses here from Amos. Amos was a prophet in the Old Testament. And he prophesied this. On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the mourning for an only son, the grieving for an only son, and the end of it like a bitter day. I think this is the same sense in which Mark is talking about the darkness here. There's a darkness that fills over the land because evil and the destruction of Jesus is happening. And Ryan talked about that last week. That actually one of the things that happened on the cross is that Satan thinks that he's winning. He thinks that he has won by striking down Jesus, the Son of God. And in in a real sense, evil has done something this day. God has allowed Satan to come and his son to be hung on a tree and to be cursed and to have the sin of the world placed upon him. But, But Ryan mentioned last week the jokes on Satan because God was actually using the work of the devil to fulfill his better purposes which is the redemption of all people who by faith trust in Jesus. But there's real darkness. There's real evil that enters into that moment. And we see that right here. This is a supernatural event. This isn't a normal crucifixion. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Jesus is quoting here the first verse of Psalm 22. And some interpreters would say by quoting the first verse, he's quoting the entire psalm. And the psalm ends with this very sort of desperate cry. And the psalm will finish with the psalmist confident that Jesus will come. Now, I think that could be true in this instance. Obviously, Jesus knows Psalm 22. That's why he's quoting it. And he understands that it starts as a lament and ends in confidence in God as the victor. But I think it also, and and more importantly, represents truly what was happening to Jesus on the cross. And truly what was happening to him on the cross was that the eternal relationship that Father and Son and Spirit had had in the eternal Godhead was being severed in a real sense in that moment for a time for our sake. And so Jesus experiences for the first time in all eternity what it means to be lonely, to be separated from His Father. And He cries out, with all of us, why have You forsaken Me? He cries out with all of us who suffer, all of us who question, all of us who cannot understand the evil of this world and why it exists in God's good creation. God, where are you? So Jesus is not a Savior. He's not a Master. He's not a Lord. He's not a friend that does not understand the darkness, the loneliness when suffering enters in. And we feel like God is far away. Jesus experienced that here, not because He had done anything that warranted it, but because He took upon Himself our sickness. 
It is the cry of dereliction that the full horror of man's sin stands revealed in Jesus. And so Jesus completely self-identifies with our sin and He experiences real, not just felt, but real abandonment by His Father, which is always the consequence of sin. And His heart is burdened by the weight and the loneliness of that moment. Now imagine this. You've probably all felt this at some point in your life. You've hurt somebody that you love. You've hurt them. Do you know how your heart aches because you've hurt somebody that you love? Jesus experienced that for the very first time on the cross. Not because of anything He did, but He took each and every one of our sins on Himself and experienced that heartache that's related to hurting somebody that you love. He became sin for us. And He knows that it hurts His Father. That's what's happening on that cross. Complete identification with our sin. My God, my God, why have You left me? Now it's always important to understand when we talk about the cross that we know of the resurrection. Okay? Because the resurrection is proof that this sacrifice was accepted by God the Father. And that relationship that was torn here is put back together as God brings Jesus back to life, proving that it worked. That Satan was defeated, that sin was conquered and removed, and that there's new life and new relationship after that feeling of forsakenness. It's always important to to mention that. It's always the cross and the resurrection, but it doesn't help us to just brush by what happened here. He felt real anguish by being separated from God the Father. Now look what happens immediately when he breathes his last breath and dies. It says, verse 38, the curtain of the temple, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Not a partial tear, a full tear What's going on here? Was this real? Was this metaphorical? I think it's both. I think the veil of the temple actually tore in two. We see in in other gospel accounts that give a little bit more detail that there was an earthquake that happened when Jesus died. The veil is torn. We're not sure exactly who saw this, but we know it happened. But it's so much more than just the real veil being torn. It represents the spiritual reality that what was once separate now has nothing standing in between it. There is now nothing keeping humanity from entering into the Holy of Holies because the veil has been torn. It has been removed, so to speak. This is a powerful, powerful reality. Now, let's dive a little bit deeper into why the veil being torn is so important to understand. Uh, You could think of it this way. There are these two realities. There's the heavenly reality, which is where God lives, where Jesus came from, and there's the earthly reality. This is where we are. And it's not just like a a distinction of geography, like heaven's like way far away. It's this completely other realm. And they've always been, since sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, and we've looked at that over the last couple weeks, there's always been this separation. God can no longer, because of sin, come into the presence of, of the earthly things without this veil without this covering. And we, we see that theme again and again and again. We see in the Old Testament, we see that Moses can't even look at God because His glory is too much for him. 
and his face is shining, and Moses puts on his own veil so that he doesn't scare the people of Israel when he comes down off of the mountain. But there has always been this separation. Because of sin, we can no longer handle the full glory of the heavenly realities, particularly the glory of God. But now, because of the death of Jesus, that veil has been dropped. That veil has been torn apart. Because now through Jesus, our mediator, we can become one with this thing that has always been separate. Heaven and earth can now become one reality. So when we pray the Lord's Prayer, what do we say? Our kingdom co- your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying that in part because of this moment where the veil was torn. Heaven can now come to earth as it is in heaven. There is no longer this barrier. Okay? Now let me read for you something. If you've got your Bibles, this one I want you to turn to. Hebrews chapter 9. And we're going to look at a long passage. Hebrews is, is just about, you know, this much thickness away from where you are in Mark, okay? Now my Bible's got bigger print than probably some of yours, so it's probably half of that if you've got the paperback. Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to look at 28 verses that try to explain what has happened here on the cross, the tearing of the veil. Uh, It will draw in some of the themes that we've been looking at the last couple weeks, but I think it's important to understand this is how the New Testament church understood what was happening. And we're going to start a series starting next week about the first three decades of the early church. We're going to be looking at the book of Acts. And it's going to take us, we're going to do about nine weeks uh, until summer. We're going to take a break during summer, and then we're going to pick it back up in the fall. And I'm really excited about this. And you're going to see some people act in some radical ways. And the reason they're acting uh, like they are is because they believe Hebrews chapter 9. That the veil has been torn, that now heaven can come to earth, that the two can become one, and that they are the catalyst as the people of God to make that happen. But, they, but you have to understand what they believe about what happened on that cross. Hebrews 9.1. Here we go. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. That's what we're talking about. The, 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 the temple and the tent. For a tent was prepared. That eventually, the tent became the temple. The first section in which was the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind that second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was the golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were cherubim, of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section for they perform their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people." By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. What he's saying here is the way it used to be didn't fully work. It was but a symbol of what is to come. That's why they had to do it over and over and over again. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared... As a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption." 
For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, how much more will that purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, He is now the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only after death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessel used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of the blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Thus, here we go, thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with blood not His own. For then He would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ has offered once to bear the sins of many. He will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. That's the Bible. <laughs> okay. It's incredible. The copies of the heavenly things is what we see in the temple. They help us see what we cannot see for ourselves by these little miniature models. And one of those was literally torn when Jesus died to help us see what was happening in the eternal heavenly places. That no longer was God now separate from His creation and His people, but the door is now open for any who, by faith in Jesus, decide to walk in to the presence of God, fall upon the grace given to them through Jesus, taking His sacrifice as their own, now they too can have eternal relationship with God. This is incredible. This is what happened on that cross. The veil was torn, and it will never be sewn back together. It's open to any and all who choose to walk in. The greater reality which is heaven and earth combined, is now revealed to those of us who still yet are on this earth. And, and this is what's so incredible about this passage. Look at what happens immediately after that veil is torn. Verse 39 in Mark says this, So the veil was torn from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw in the way he breathed his last. Okay, I don't think what it's saying here is that he saw the veil torn. 
I think it's just that he saw the way Jesus died. He saw that something supernatural was happening. And the way that he breathed his last, this is the conclusion that the centurion makes. Truly, this man was the Son of God. He just had something removed from his eyes. And for the first time in the Gospel of Mark, a human being says those words, this man is the Son of God. Now, if you haven't been with us the whole way, this might be lost on you. I want you to turn back with me to Mark chapter 1. Because Mark has been building towards this moment the entire gospel. It's the whole story. It's what he's been doing. Because the very first words of his gospel are the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if you drop down to verse 11, at Jesus' baptism, the very first voice that ever utters those words are God the Father Himself. At Jesus' baptism, it says, when He came up out of the water, a voice from heaven cried out, You are My beloved Son. And again, the voice of heaven cries out at Jesus' transfiguration, This is My Son. And three other times, there are entities that say Jesus is the Son of God, and guess what realm they live in? The spiritual, heavenly realms. It's demons. Three times say, you are the Son of God. But for the very first time, this centurion, who is only a man at this point of earth, now steps across the threshold into the realm of the heavenlies. And he sees what God has already declared at the very beginning of the Gospel, that this is the Son of God. Do you see that? Because that veil has been torn. And the eyes of those of us who are just human beings can now be opened to the realities of heaven where Jesus the Son of God, has always been the Son of God. But now we can see it. And, and, and it might be lost on us here, but I, w- I want you to see this is absolutely bonkers that it is a Roman centurion to be the first human being that recognizes Jesus' true identity. He's not a Jew. He is not a religious man. He did not grow up hearing about Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. He was not expecting a Messiah to come. He was a centurion, which means that he was the captain of a hundred other Roman soldiers. Guess how you become a captain? You kill a lot of people. You're good at your job. They probably aren't, weren't all righteous kills. What does he do for a living now? He oversees the torture of Jewish criminals. Did you believe this? This is the first human being to get the true identity of Jesus correct. That doesn't say something to you about who can step across into the Holy of Holies. You're not listening. It's everybody, anybody that's willing to humble themselves to the revelation of God, of the heavenly truths. It was a centurion. 
just love that. <laughs> Can't get over it. Oh, there we go. All right. So this is huge. For the very first time, it has been revealed to a human being that Jesus Christ is not just a great teacher. He's not just a righteous man. He's not just somebody to model our lives after. He's not even just the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And what was once separated by sin, our ability to see Jesus correctly, is now revealed by grace. The veil has been torn. And this is this idea of revelation, this idea of the reality of who Jesus is, the reality of who God is being revealed on the cross, this is, this is part of the cross uh, that I never fully understood. And, and it's part, you know, I, I have a great privilege of getting to study um, this stuff, even, even from Hawaii. Uh, I got to study this stuff. And this is one of the elements that I, I didn't fully grasp. So I want to share it with you. It's this, the revelatory nature of the cross. And, and Ryan talked about it three times last week, that Jesus predicts that on the cross, he will actually be glorified. Okay? So three times Jesus says, I must go to be glorified. And, and this is such an odd way to talk about the cross. How is the cross glorifying to Jesus, how is it glorifying to God? Well, one of the things we have to understand is when we say God is glorified, what do we mean? And I think this is another thing that I've often sort of misunderstood. Maybe you've misunderstood this. It's not as if when we worship to Jesus, when we talk about Jesus, when we talk about God, when we sing to God, that he actually becomes greater or becomes more glorious, actually what's happening is we are just revealing what already is. That's what it means to glorify God. So when I glorify God in the way that I live, I'm, I, I'm just revealing to people that, oh, He is more real and true and good than they otherwise would have seen. And, and the way I live, or the way I worship, or the, the way I sing to Him, uh, the way I obey Him, all of those things are revealing the reality of God. That, that is what it is. It's not changing. It's just being revealed. Now, now think about what that is. That is actually the exact same thing that's happening with the centurion. He is the first person to reveal or to say out loud what has already been, always been true in heaven because now the veil is removed. And now the glories of heaven can become fully realized in the earthly realm. Okay? And, and on the cross, that is happening in the most profound way that it's ever happened in the history of the world. Um, so you remember the old owl and the Tootsie Pop? You know, how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop, right? Well, everybody knows that the true... Glory of the Tootsie Pop is the Tootsie Roll, which is in the center. But it takes several licks to get there. Do you guys not know this? Is this still a thing? Okay. But everybody also knows that the owl, at one point, just bites into it and cracks it open. Right? That's what happens on the cross. God has been revealing, revealing His true nature, His grace, His mercy, His love, patiently, patiently licking, and all of a sudden He's like, okay, it's time I crack this thing open. And on the cross, we get to the center of the Tootsie Pop. And what we see on the cross, we've been talking about this, is the power of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, 
revealed to us in a way that's never been revealed before. And that's who God has always been. That's who He truly is. He is the self-sacrificing, humble, all-powerful, relational being who cares for some reason about us even more than His own Son. And it's revealed. The center of God's glory and grace is revealed right there on the cross. Cracked open. Torn in two. That we might see it fully. That's why we look at it all the time. That's why we must see it for what it is. That's why we can't just keep it as this idea, but we have to experience and understand fully what happened because that's who God is. We see it on the cross. Heaven has never been more revealed on earth than was on the cross. And that's why the centurion says, that must be the Son of God. Now once those heavenly realities are revealed to humanity, once it's been revealed to you and you see that Jesus died for you, that He bore your sin out of love, that He chose this, that this is actually who God is, when we see these things by faith, guess what it should do to us? It should radically change us. This is what we'll see in the Acts of the Apostles and the early church that they behaved crazy because they'd just seen how crazy reality is. They'd seen a man die for their sin and they saw him rise from the grave. Their eyes are now unveiled. They see things as they actually are. And so imagine right now, sometimes it can be hard, so heaven came to earth in Jesus. Imagine if you could be transported into heaven and you could see the full glory of God. You could see things as they really were. You could see the kingdom that was coming. You could see the majesty and the might and the wonder of God. That you were transported there and you saw it. Whose agenda do you think you'd live for today? You think you'd keep living for your own agenda? If you saw that, but yet day in and day out, I live for my own agenda. I think for some reason that it matters that I get what I want. If I truly saw heaven revealed to me, if I truly saw the cross and the God of all grace and mercy revealed to me, I'd live for God's agenda, no matter what it was, no matter what it cost. And I wouldn't call it unfair. I wouldn't call it stifling. I would pursue it with pure, unfiltered joy, knowing what was coming to earth as it is in heaven. I'd start dying today to my own agenda, and I'd start living today for God's agenda. Because heaven starts right now. Jesus died on this planet to bring heaven to earth. The kingdom starts now, my friends. Eternity starts now. As soon as you see Jesus Christ, the Son of God. thank God that the veil was torn. I thank God that He removed the veil from my eyes that I might see. And I pray to God that He will glorify me as He has His Son, Jesus. And the Bible teaches this. The Bible teaches that in each and every one of us is the image of God. We are not gods like Jesus, but we have the image of God. We're like many gods, and in us is some 
minor uh, measure of God's glory. It's known as the Imago Dei. The image of God is in us. And God wants to glorify us as well. And this is how He glorifies us. By revealing in us what is true and right and good and heavenly. You see, we have an eternal future. We have a heavenly body that is waiting for us at the resurrection, at the last days. But even now, that glory is in us. And I have to share this with you. I have to share you. I have to share this with you. And the reason I have to share this with you is because I was sitting uh, poolside in Hawaii writing this down in my notes. Wasn't sure if I was going to talk about it or not. And all of a sudden, I, literally, I wrote three exclamation points. Sometimes I do this just to remind myself this is a great idea. Uh, three exclamation points on my notes. And guess what happened literally that second? A bird dookied on my notes. <laughs> One of three possibilities is true. One, the devil and Satan, who Ryan talked about last week, did not want me to share this with you. But I don't believe the devil lives on Kauai, so I don't think it was him. The second option is that God, who is in control of all creation, wanted to remind me that this was a very important point, so he put his own exclamation point right here on my paper. The third option is that it was just a random coincidence. I don't care which option it is. I said, I've got to share this. I circled it. I added another exclamation point. Actually, two more. <laughs> and I wrote it down. So this is, this is what I want to say. We have this glory in us. Each of us has the image or reflection of God himself in us. And because of the work of Jesus on the cross, we too have access to the same Spirit which reveals the truth of who Jesus is. And even now, by the Spirit, the untrue in us, the earthly in us, the perishable in us, the selfish in us, is being stripped away by the Spirit if we let Him. So that the truer image of God in us might be revealed time and time again. That's all possible because of the power of the cross. It reverberates. It's like an echo that shoots out from what Jesus did and it begins to crack away at the untrue in us. We don't just wait to put on our heavenly body, our resurrection body when we die or when Jesus returns. We begin to put it on today by removing that earthly, fleshly veil which keeps hidden the glory of God in each and every person in this room. Because it takes a lot of licks to get to the center of that Tootsie Pop. It does. And it's going to come in many forms in your life. Some are going to be joyful, wonderful licks that start to strip away and you see the true and the good and you want more of that, some of them are going to feel more like the cross in your life. And they're going to crack you in ways that you're not sure you're going to be able to withstand. But God is doing it to reveal the glory of Himself that is hidden in you. That He has placed in you. And if you let Him by the refining fire of the Spirit, you too will begin to look more and more like Jesus, more and more like the glorious, image-bearing creatures that you were intended to be. And just like the centurion that day, you will get to proclaim to the world the truth and the reality of things that were once unseen and now they're seen in you because of the work of the Spirit of God. Because of the cross working its way through your life. Are you going to let that happen? Are you going to live the way of the cross 
It is the way that glory is revealed. Let's pray. Father, why you did this, why you did not just cut off earth and human beings from the knowledge of the true, the knowledge of the heavenly, why you work patiently to bring heaven to earth, we'll never fully understand. But because you've revealed it to us, because you've told us through your word that this is exactly what you are doing, we believe you. We trust you. And we try it out in our own life. We try the way of the cross in our own daily lives. And what we find is that the way of the cross is true. It is good. No matter how hard, it reveals the better, truer, heavenly parts of who we are. God, I pray for my friends here that they would have a revelation of your goodness, a revelation of your love, a revelation of what is already in heaven. That they might see that and it might transform them to walk in your ways, to follow Jesus more closely, to press through whatever it is in their life that they feel like, I can't give that but that they sacrifice that, knowing that there's something so much better on the other side. We pray this and so much more in the name of your son Jesus, who died for us on the cross, that bore our sin on that cross, who defeated Satan and evil and death on that cross, and who tore the veil for us, that we might step into your presence. Help us step in right now, in the name of Jesus, amen.